Today I'm preaching from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. This does come in a, in a context, so I'd like to back up and start in verse 13 that puts us this passage in the context of the pursuit of holiness. So listen as I read, I'll begin with verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, because it is written, Be holy. As I, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time you have of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, or from your aimless conduct received by the traditions from your fathers but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. I remember being afraid. I vividly remember the shortness of breath, my mind rushing, and then having a laser focus of what to do, and then racing again, and that shortness of breath catching me. Peter calls us to walk in fear. And I've just described being afraid in my life. But what Peter has in mind is something different, but does address us in the midst of fears, real worldly fears. Just stop for a moment and think about the people that Peter was writing to were afraid for their lives. They were suffering persecution. They feared for their jobs, for their religious freedoms, for their families, and yes, maybe even for their very lives. And yet, in the context of that, Peter says, fear the Lord. Conduct yourselves while you have this time in this life. Conduct yourself in fear. Well, The fear of the Lord is something different from the things that make us afraid in this life. There is something similar, but the fear of the Lord has the idea of reverence and awe that is given to God, who is to be feared, is to be reverenced. It has a mind of of a single-minded focus on honoring God as God and to honor him above all else. Think of that passage from Psalm 123 that I read earlier. 
Unto you I lift my eyes, O Lord, who dwells in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hands of their masters, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. Now, don't get tripped up by the idea of servants and maids. It isn't demeaning to serve the Lord, to have really the longing of our hearts satisfied by belonging to him. So don't get tripped up by that. But, but think of that relationship of looking with intent, laser focus to the hand of our master, to be so in tune with that that we can judge what needs to be done next. And the joy of that service that comes in the loving relationship that we have with God. Our eyes are fixed upon the Lord in such a way Our eyes are fixed in a way that give reverent obedience and reverent worship to our Lord who has saved us. And it is with that fixedness of attention that shapes our will and our wants and our ways to the things of God's will and God's wants. This is what reverence is, and it is full of blessing. In this passage, Peter gives what we might call incentives for holy living, incentives for this reverent, single-minded following after the Lord. I want to go through those incentives today. There are four of them. God is our Father, our Judge, our Redeemer, and the Planner of our Salvation. But more than that, I want to not just inform you of those things, but I want you to see how they motivate you, how they move you to follow after Christ, to give reverent worship and obedience to him. I'll be explaining those incentives and then applying them so that you would see how you may give reverence to God in each of the cases. So first, notice that Peter says that God is our Father. This isn't new in Peter's letter, and it's not new to Peter at all, that fathership, uh, the fatherhood of God is something that runs all throughout Scripture. You are a child of God. Because of his great love for you, he has adopted you into his family. That means that You don't have to strive for his love. You don't have to be afraid that somehow you will disappoint God. You know what that looks like, right? It's portrayed in movies all the time, and maybe you've known some of these fears. It's portrayed this way. The main character is racked with fear whether or not he is good enough or whether or not she has been able to please her father. And there's this dilemma that provides some of the context or the, 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 the critical uh, tension in a movie. As I said, maybe you've known that as well in earthly relationships. Maybe you worry about that in your heavenly relationship. Well, 
what the Bible describes is something completely different. Our God, our Father in heaven, loves you irregardless of that sin. He loves you through the cleansing work of Jesus Christ in a way that brings you into his family and loves you faithfully without ever giving that up. Much like human adoption then, God has identified you as as his children. He has given you his name. He's given you all the privileges of his love and of uh, of being his heirs. I want you to think about what that means for you as a believer, to think of the incentive that that is for holy living and the incentive to give reverence to God. You are a child of God, and as you think on who you are as a child of God, you begin to respond to the love that you have received from him. God has loved you in such a way that, uh, that he has given you access to his heart and to his mind. He's even given you his Holy Spirit so that you, you, you know his will and you know, know his love and you know his ways. He draws you into his presence so that we may pour out our hearts to him like children to a caring father. And by his love, God stirs you up to live out that heritage to live out that name that you have received, to live as sons and daughters in this world. Practically speaking, then, to show reverence to God in this case is to respond to a father's love by loving him in response. Close your eyes and envision, if you would, how a child looks at his parents. How a daughter looks to her mother or father with a trusting love. Think of how they run into their mother's arms when they see them after maybe being dropped off for for babysitting and then the mother comes in through the door and their face lights up when there's mom. Or you can watch a child track their father from across the room, watching and noticing just where he is and and gravitating towards that relationship. Well, the same is true for you as a believer. That your heavenly father has loved you and you begin to track him as well. Your eyes have that, uh, begin to have that laser focus, that single-minded focus on a God who has loved you and has forgiven you, and one who has promised that he will never leave you or forsake you. Think of that in the context of the troubles that you face. Think of it in the context of our own faltering faith. Now, the times where you might be embarrassed to appear before the Lord, 
But the Lord opens his arms to you and invites you as a loving father to come. Sometimes in repentance, sometimes in anxiety, sometimes in in consternation because we just don't know what to do. And yet as a heavenly father, you can look to him and in reverence respond to his love by loving him in return. The next incentive for reverence that Peter gives is that God is your judge. Verse 17 says, we call on the father who without partiality judges according to each one's work. Therefore, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Now, honestly, this aspect of God might terrify you, right? If you don't understand God's grace, if you don't understand that he shows mercy to those who repent, if you miss the point that you are his child, then all you see is a God who judges the wicked with an eternal wrath. But Peter points this out in the context of this this idea of our adoption. Go back to the opening verses in that, that long, glorious passage that describes the inheritance that has been given to you as a child of God, that he is reserving a place in heaven for you, that your salvation is is indestructible and incorruptible and will never fade away in Christ. And in that context, he then begins to talk about a pursuit of holiness and a pursuit of holiness that doesn't lash you along as if you could be good enough to deserve God's love. No, remember that God has loved you in Christ as a father. And that changes the way you hear this incentive about the pursuit of holiness. For God is a judge. The Bible teaches us that God sees all things, that he knows all things, that he sees the things that you do in secret, that he knows even the thoughts and the desires of your mind and of your heart. We know from the Bible that he is a just and righteous God, that he judges without partiality, says Peter. In other words, he doesn't show favoritism based on your race or gender, your wealth, your learning, your upbringing. Whether that be good or bad, he judges according to each one's work, requiring perfect obedience or perfect holiness. Because as it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And as I said, uh, this may terrify you without the grace of Jesus Christ. So make sure that you hear the truth that in Christ your sins are forgiven. You have passed from death to life. As Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. 
have indeed been saved by grace through faith, and that not as of yourselves, it is the gift of God. But at the same time, remember that you are now his workmanship. You've been transformed. All those things that you tried to do in your own strength that came up futile, because you have a new relationship in Jesus Christ, you are now enabled to follow after him. So, following Paul's language again, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, show reverence to God, your judge. Show reverence to him by by changing your ways. Not in your own strength. Not as if you can make yourself good enough to deserve his love. But change your ways by the power of the Spirit at work in you to follow after him. Change your ways to, to, to honor him and to respect his ways, to respect his laws. The fact that he is a judge motivates us, doesn't it? It motivates you to stop sinning. God does know these things. God sees those secret things. Motivates you to long to be free from those sins that once entangled you. And it motivates you by the power of Christ working in you. By his grace, you are saved. God himself strengthens you to do this, to more and more put off what is old and to put on what is new. See, God's judgments are right and true And he has fully satisfied the demands of the law by pouring out his his judgment on Jesus Christ. And that judgment is fully satisfied. And now you can thank him that you have passed from death unto life. And there's that motivation of God knowing and judging, but there's also now another motivation. There's the motivation of gratitude. He has set you free. It brings about this idea of reverence, that single-minded focus and purpose to mold your will to follow after Christ. Out of reverence to God our judge, pray that you would put away what is old and put on what is new. The third incentive that Peter calls attention to is that God is our Redeemer comes through in verses 18 through 19. God has redeemed us, not with gold or silver, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And let's pause and think a little bit more closely about that idea of redemption. And maybe you haven't thought about this lately, but I want to remind you that redemption implies that there is a price paid. I like to compare it to going to a pawn shop. Now, Jesus and pawn shops don't naturally go together in my mind, but uh, 
But this is where it comes in. You can go to a pawn shop and you can take something that's valuable to them, a, a tool or a golden watch, and say, uh, I will give this to you. And the pawn shop says, well, I will, I will give you a loan for that, uh, uh, for that valuable item, for that gold watch. I'll give you 100 bucks. Now, we'll keep it for a time, and uh, in three weeks, you can come and buy it back. You can redeem that watch. Pay the $100 and the interest that goes, and you buy it back. You redeem it. Redemption has a cost. In spiritual terms, redemption has a cost. You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. God didn't redeem you with money. For that matter, for that matter all the gold and silver in the world would never be enough to purchase your soul. Never. You are not bought back with these corruptible things. You were a slave of Satan. You were bound up under his dominion and under the penalty and the wrath and curse of God. And to be free from that curse, Christ paid the penalty. And he paid it in full by his death on the cross. In fact, at the cross, the agreement of your captivity is described as being nailed to the cross. You can think of it as a contract that's written over it now, paid in full. Jesus Christ, by his precious blood, has redeemed you. That may help you to understand what we will observe later in our service today, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. God demonstrates by the bread and the cup the price that was paid for your redemption. It wasn't by money, by the body and blood of Jesus Christ who took your place and suffered the wrath of God for you. You weren't redeemed either by your goodness. Peter's discussion here helps you understand what comes next. God didn't redeem you with silver or gold. From your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers. What he's describing here is what had descended to the Jews... From, uh, uh, from a, a, over a period of time, they had come to reduce their relationship to God to mere outward obedience. That was the tradition that they had received from the Father, as if you could do enough good works to redeem you. But there's not enough money in the world to redeem you. There's not enough God good works that you could do to buy yourself back. It is only by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. 
And in fact, he has set you free from the aimlessness, the worthlessness of trying to buy yourself back. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. The washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Well, that helps you to understand this call to conduct yourself with reverence or fear. And in this case, as you think about the price that has been paid, it motivates you to practice gratitude. Show reverence to God, then, by a, by a practice of gratitude for what God has done for you. In fact, one of the commentators on this passage says uh, very appropriately that the greater the payment, the deeper and more lasting should be our gratitude. Right? Just think about it. If, If someone has paid back a dollar for you, we're thankful for that. But if they've paid back a hundred, a thousand, a million dollars, then our gratitude is greater. Well, Christ has paid the eternal price for you to redeem you from your sins. And he has set you free from that debt and shame of sin and the and that bondage in which we were in. And as he has paid that price for your redemption, it it moves you to gratitude. Much like that idea of, uh, uh, of the judge, we obey because of, of fear, but also now of gratitude. Take that a step further. Put it in the context of the price that has been paid for you. And then in the context of suffering, as Peter does. It seems like, especially in the midst of trouble and anxiety, that we can forget the price that has been paid. And our our vision becomes kind of tunnel vision, and we, we focus only on ourselves and the trouble that we are in. And we begin to worry, and anxiety begins to bubble up. And those real-life fears begin to dominate our vision and our our hearts. What's the antidote to that? The antidote isn't just to say, stop worrying. The antidote is gratitude. That's a fascinating thing for you to meditate on. In the midst of your worries, to lift your eyes to Christ and what he has done for you. To lift your eyes to your Father who is in heaven. To see with this this single-minded focus what Christ has done for you. And then, out of gratitude, to turn to mold your your response 
to whatever it is that is troubling you that day. Out of reverence, practice gratitude to to your Redeemer. Fourthly and finally, to reverence because God has planned our salvation. Not only has he paid the price, it is a price that he had planned from all eternity past. Listen to verses 21 and 22, or 20 and 21 again. For he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. To foreordain something is to order it beforehand. It has in mind what Peter called attention to earlier, our election. You can see that back in verse 2. He writes to those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Let me just say again that, that that the teaching, the truth of election is a rich doctrine. And broadly, it refers to the fact that God has sovereignly chosen to save sinners, even before he created the world, that in the counsel of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that he sovereignly decided to love sinners and to send a Savior. And Jesus agreed to do that, to lay down his life for us. And what he has chosen to do from before the foundation of the world, he has now acted in history to accomplish. And what he has acted in history to accomplish, he has has then manifested to us so that we could understand that, that sovereign purpose that is worked out and applied to us now by his Holy Spirit. To be manifest speaks of Jesus' appearing, his incarnation, his birth, life, death, resurrection, and glory that Peter mentions here, and manifested for a purpose, was manifested for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. There's incentive, isn't there? That a sovereign God has planned this out. He has purposed to love you and to save you from your sins. So we show reverence to the one who has planned this. And what reverence comes from this? The word that comes to my mind is awe. God has, from all eternity past, determines to save you from your sins. To save you from your sins. That's mind-boggling. So you may show reverence to God by nurturing awe in his presence. Your status in the world may be full of sorrow and and anxiety. The troubles that you're going through right now uh, may keep you up at night. You may be like I described earlier, that you can 
Your breath is panting and your mind is racing because of the troubles that you face. But all of those things will never change the sovereign purpose of an almighty God who has and will accomplish everything that he has determined. You cannot and Satan cannot, and death cannot change that. That is an awesome thing to think about. You will never be snatched from the hand of God. You will never be snatched out of Christ's hands. He has acted, and as he has acted, he will always accomplish it. That means that as you contemplate what God has done, you can mold your will, you can mold your wants, you can mold your ways around the sovereign love of God for you. Give reverence to him. With these incentives, Peter says, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, in reverence, So show reverence by loving the Father who has loved you. Show reverence by respecting your judge and his laws. Show reverence by practicing gratitude for the redemption that has been paid for you. And show love by nurturing awe for God's sovereign plan. Let's do so together as we bow in prayer. Let's show reverence to our God. Let's pray. Lord, our God, we turn our eyes to you who is enthroned in heaven. As a servant or a maid looks to their master's hands, we look to you, O God, the one who has shown us mercy in Jesus Christ. Father, as you have given us such wonderful incentives to follow after you, I pray, Lord, you would indeed move us towards holy living, You have saved us for that purpose. By the precious blood of Jesus Christ, you have saved us. And we are grateful. Out of gratitude, O God, we pray that we would pursue that holy living that testifies that there is a God in heaven, a God who has saved us for himself. And Lord, what we have tried to do in and of ourselves, in our own strength, to satisfy or to find happiness, God, we surrender ourselves to you. All of those things were aimless. But in Christ, we are new creatures. We have been given new wills. And what is impossible without you is now possible. And out of joy and gratitude and awe, O God, we give our reverence to you, giving obedience and worship to our Savior in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's sing together Psalm 130, first selection, selection A. I want you to notice what we sing here, that we cry out of the depths to the Lord, asking him to hear our supplicating plea, even noticing that uh, if uh, God were to mark our iniquities, that no one could stand. But then uh, it testifies to the reverence that we give to God that he is the one who has redeemed us, 
and has covered over all of our sins. So we give reverent worship and obedience to him. Let's stand and sing Psalm 130, Selection A.